Numbers chapter 13, verses 25, all the way until Numbers chapter 14, verse 25. Um, it's on page 104 of the Bibles in your uh, seat pockets if you're using those. So again, Numbers 13, verse 25, to Numbers 14, verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran, at Kadesh. They brought back word to them, and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and are very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell on the land of Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into, the, into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the, all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting and all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs I have done among them? I will strike them with this pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. 
They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them, and you go before them. In a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that, and that he has killed them into the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven the people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, Turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. This is God's word. Everyone, take a moment, if you would, just to look around you. All right, look. Look to the persons to your left, to your right. Look behind you, if possible. Now, likely... There's likely you're seeing a fellow brother or sister in Christ. (laughs) Now, don't worry. I'm not not going to force you to introduce yourself or sort of break into small groups to talk about a number of silly questions and that sort of thing. But I just wonder if you've thought about praying for these same people. Even, even while you sit and listen to preaching on prayer and this series about prayer. <laughs> now, I know talk like this is worrisome for, for a number of us because today we're going to be leaving the comfortable confines of personal prayer for most of the remaining of October. We're going to be entering the, the jungle of praying for and with others. One thing to pray on our own, it's another thing to pray with and for other people. It's like going from the comfortable bubble bath slash leather recliner, depending on your gender, to going to an office weekend retreat with your spouse's company. I I just talked to a friend who, who went on one of these with his spouse, and he said there was no end to the misery uh, of awkwardness. But that's sort of what it sometimes it feels like when we go from praying to God, which is we get in this comfort zone finally with Him, and then praying with others and for others, and that just 
but it's also one of the most astounding privileges we have as Christians to intercede in prayer for other people. Earlier this year, I uh, preached through the book of Malachi, uh, much to many people's surprise that decided to preach through that book, including even my wife's. I told her, she said, really, Malachi, what? <laughs> but God uh, had a lot of relevance, I think, for us uh, in that book. And in the second chapter, God addresses his priests, the people who were his go-between, between him and human beings. So I took a sermon to talk about priesthood both then and now. And because Jesus has interceded between us and God as our high priest, the greatest priest, he then allows us to be priests between him and other people. And so if you've trusted Christ, you too are a priest. You're called into his royal priesthood, Scripture says. As, as great reformer John Calvin put it, after becoming a high priest, Jesus received us as his companions into the priestly office. And that's a privilege. And this morning we see Moses, a man whose prayers far exceeded the importance of even his sermons. Moses is a man of intercession to the core. And, and this morning we get this sort of, I, I had to choose one example, and this is what we chose. From Numbers 14, first we're going to learn why we need to intercede in prayer for others. And then we're going to learn seven lessons about prayer. And my, and my hope, my prayer is that each of us takes one, two, or three lessons that we need to hear the most, and there will be seven. And, and, and you can't, look, we'll see how many we get through, seven lessons. Uh, you can't, I don't write this stuff, all right? <laughs> I can't help that Moses gave us so many lessons about prayer. I'm just, you know, I'm just the beat reporter. Here we go. Let's get started. Why do we need this? Why do we need to intercede in prayer for others? The short answer, we are fickle people. Uh, certainly we need prayer because we're sinful people, but specifically fickle. Look with me in verse 1, chapter 14. We're just going to go through Numbers 14 as we learn about intercessory prayer. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. The context here is God heard the cries of his people who were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, and not a good kind of slavery. Uh, there's really not a good kind of slavery, but this was not a good kind of slavery. So God promises back in Exodus 6 to deliver them to himself and to give them a land of their own. A land flowing with milk and honey. Or to translate for some of you, a land of soy milk and agave nectar. Right? <laughs> well, we live in a different age. He rescues, them, uh, he rescues them from the most powerful nation at this time. I mean, this is miraculous stuff. And after he does so, he, he takes them into the wilderness. And he tries to teach them to trust him. Because they're fickle. They have short memories of locust plagues and rivers turning to blood and, and, and parting major bodies of water. So he tries to remind them of his faithfulness and teach them again. He tries to to feed them all that they need for one day, but they want a full-size fridge to keep more. He tries to send them a pillar of fire as a nightlight, and they want the pyrotechnics. 
And so when they finally, as we see here, mosey on up to the promised land, as Rob read, they, they send spies in this land to check it out, to survey it, do a little reconnaissance work, see what's before them, right? Report back. And so we read here, and the, the irony of what we read here is the cries to God of deliverance and exodus have turned to cries of dissatisfaction with that deliverance. You see that? Remember? I've heard their cry here. They cry because they're dissatisfied with that deliverance just a couple years later. Look with me in verses 2 through 4. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. I guess they just want an honorable death at this point. Or, or that we died even in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Wouldn't it be better for us just to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's, let's just choose another leader and go back to Egypt. This is just a couple years later. They receive a fulfillment of God's promise, which is itself an answer to prayer, right? Those cries to the Lord. But after receiving the fulfillment of that promise, they expect their lives to be easy. They expect their lives to be problem-free. That's how it's supposed to work, right? We pray, God works, my life is problem-free. Friends, prayer begets the need for more prayer. God rewards dependence on Him by creating in us a greater capacity for courage, greater capacity for strength, not so much. Greater capacity for ability, a greater capacity for dependence. Dependence begets a greater capacity for dependence. That we learn to rely on Him more by relying on Him before. And that is a great blessing. Because life is full, as we know, of trouble. Their reaction here reminds me of when we, we get, a, get a job or promotion that we ask God for, but when the heightened responsibility, heightened scrutiny, and, and all of a sudden, people don't like us as much, when that comes along for the ride... We wish it never had happened. Or, or we pray and we seek Him to heal a spouse, a child, or a family member from some illness, and, and He heals them. And, and we look and we see how we and the other person has grown tremendously because of both the illness and the healing. But when the medical bills come in, oh, Lord, would this have never happened? Like God's people of old, you and I tend to be fickle. And so we need to intercede on behalf of one another. So let's learn. We know why we need to intercede for each other. Let's learn some lessons of intercessory prayer. Lesson one, praying does not excuse us from confrontation. Look with me in verses 5 through 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. So they are praying, they are interceding, they are weeping in prayer, really, before the Lord. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out all the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. 
a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are like bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. This is not the first time, by the way, we see this sort of two-phased ministry strategy. When the Amalekites attacked Israel, as we read back in Exodus 17, Moses chose a similar military strategy by which he goes to the top of a hill to pray with his hands raised. And his top lieutenants, Aaron, a guy named Hur, hold up his hands as he prays. Meanwhile, Joshua stays on the ground to confront the Malachites. The Amalekites in physical combat. So Moses is up here, Joshua's down here, and the strategy works. And we see a similar thing going on here, right, in a different form. You got Moses praying, Joshua, Caleb on the ground confronting. Right? Sounds like a good strategy. A pretty attractive strategy, right? You confront, huh? I'll pray. How's that sound? And, and that sounds nice, but there are a couple problems with directly correlating this strategy today. Number one, no one wants to volunteer to confront. All right? Uh, you may find a couple Moses and Aaron's out there, very few Joshua's and Caleb's in this instance. No one's going to raise their hand and say, I have the spiritual gift of confronting. <laughs> right? If you, if, even if you're good at it, you don't want to admit it. Plus, the New Testament commands us to do a couple things when a family member is caught in sin, caught in a mess. The first is this. Galatians 6.1, Paul says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, in sin, in rebellion, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, we're called to go to someone, and in love, with the goal of restoring them, not to be a, a jerk to them, not to say I told you so, but the aim is to restore them. To gain them back as a brother or a sister. So as you pray, be open to God using you as part of the solution through confrontation, through gently restoring someone. Now, it's always a good time to pray for someone, but what lesson two teaches us is that there is a best time to pray for someone and that is when someone is caught in rebellion. 1 John 5.16, we're reminded of the second thing the New Testament tells us when a family member is caught in sin. And that is this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, um, you can ask me about that later if you want, a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. This is an amazing promise. It's not meant to be judgmental of someone can ask, and God will give life to that person, a power. Now, saturated throughout these verses this morning that we're reading is the occasion for Moses to intercede, and that occasion is rebellion. We want another leader. They want to stone Joshua and Caleb. So, now, that's the occasion, and that's when they intercede, and Moses begins to pray. That's the occasion for prayer. Now, let's look at what drives us to prayer. Let's look at a sample conversation. What drives us to prayer. Let's say in a conversation someone mentions that their business or job is going poorly. All right, let's just, over a course of a lunch, 45-minute conversation, maybe it's a breakfast, maybe you're just 
shooting the breeze. Job's not going well. They have a visitor on island who's visiting with them. You know, me and my spouse, i got to admit, oftentimes we're like roommates. We go a lot of days without even talking to each other. They complain a little bit, clearly have some bitterness towards their parents. Okay, like, you know, throw in a, uh, don't you love it when, blank, in the conversation, all right, just a little fun. Uh, and then, uh, what about a stomach ailment? Let's throw that in there, all right? I got a stomach problem. I'm having some tests done on it. All right, that, that's the course of the conversation. Now, you have this conversation with someone. If you were to volunteer to pray for this person at the end of this conversation, where are you heading? All right, if you were to say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you about this. What of those things are you going to pray about? Be honest. All right? First of all, they've, they've hinted as much as one is going to that their marriage might be on the rocks. All right? They live like they're just roommates, not like they're a married couple. Maybe that's, they're even tempted then towards infidelity because when people live parallel lives, that happens. So they've admitted this. They've admitted bitterness that will likely poison their relationship with their parents, if not other relationships. But we choose, ding, ding, ding. You know, I'm going to pray for a blessing on your job. And I'm just going to pray that God would help your stomach. If we're honest, like I look at that list, I think that's what I'm praying for this person. That's what I'm going to admit that I'm going to pray for them about. I don't want to go into the other stuff. I think the problem is we don't want to, one, appear judgmental. Right? We don't want to say, sounds like your marriage isn't my, can I pray for your marriage? Oh, that might sound judgmental. And secondly, the problem is we, we, we don't want to be disappointed, right? Because a successful appendectomy is, is more likely than a person changing. Don't we really believe that? A successful, uh, you know, operation is probably more likely than a person changing who they are or being changed. And so it's, we don't want to be disappointed in prayer. But remember, remember the seriousness of both the condition they're in And the seriousness of the promise, God will grant them life. That far outweighs that we might appear to be judgmental or that it might test our faith. Lesson three. God has a plan, but your prayer may be the means. All right, we with me in verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long Will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? All right, now here God's bringing the thunder, right? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, this begs the question, would, would God's people have been obliterated if Moses didn't step up and pray? Which he's going to do, right, in just a minute. Would they have been obliterated if, if Moses didn't say, hey, I'm going I'm to intercede? Well, yes and no. Uh, no in the sense that God is faithful to his promises to not ultimately abandon his people. But at the same time, Moses' response of intercession is part and parcel of his good plan. Right? It's part of his plan. And your prayer might be also. Part of his plan for someone's good. Watchman Nee, a Christian church planner, evangelist, and Chinese prisoner, 
over the last 20 years of his life, died in the 1970s, knew about prayer, and he said this about God's plan and your prayer. Our prayers lay the track down on which God's power usually comes. Like a mighty locomotive, his power is irresistible, but it cannot reach us without rails. For those of us who are prone to fatalism, God's just going to do it anyway. Or, Or just plain indifference. God has a plan, but your prayer may be the rails that bring it. Lesson four. Appeal to God's glory and pray. Look at me in verses 13 through 16. What a prayer this is. Moses said to the Lord, if you do this, then the Egyptians are going to hear about it. The Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. Remember God, them. They saw all those miracles. They saw what you did. They heard about how you're going to deliver people and take them into a new land. They're going to hear about this. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land that we're about to go into. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, you are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a, in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, and the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord is not able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them. So he's killed them in the wilderness. You see what Moses has done here? In interceding for people, he has appealed to God. He has appealed to God's glory. All the great intercessory prayers of the Old Testament have at their core an appeal to God to glorify his own name. To glorify his name through a demonstration of grace or mercy. God, do this to glorify yourself. The prophet Daniel, for instance, he lived in a foreign land. Everyone was known as the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem. God punished his people for the repeated disregard for him and his law. He, he knew they needed to learn a lesson and be woken up. And as the time of punishment drew to a close, Daniel appeals to God's glory that it might close quicker so that he might, might go back to the promised land more quickly. Here's what he prays. I love this prayer. Daniel 9, 17 through 19. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations living in this foreign land and the city that is called by your name. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Do you see a pattern here? Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. God will glorify his name. He longs to hear a prayer that does the same. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Now, I want to stop here for a second. For, for some people, this may sound distasteful. A friend and I were chatting this past week. 
about the book of Revelation, and he mentioned a thought that I'd had before myself, and that is, kind of sounds like God has an ego. You know, that he wants praise for himself. And I thought that too before, and I had two responses to this. One, God seeking his own glory is not a total picture of who he is. Not only do we see in Matthew 11 that Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble, humble in heart. But the three members of the Godhead seek to honor and bring glory to another. So the Son says in John 8 that he doesn't seek his own glory, but he seeks to glorify the Father. John 13, the Father seeks to glorify the Son, we're told. And finally, John 16, the Spirit seeks to glorify and speak the words of the Son. You see that there's a mutual honoring and glorifying of the other within the Godhead. So first of all, we have that. But, but second of all, when we speak of ego or pride, we do so in the words of C.S. Lewis as essentially comparative. Right? Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but having more than someone else. So pride is. I have more. I want more. I am more than someone else. So the first sin of pride is Adam and Eve not being satisfied with their something. Right? but there's something compared to God's something. And that's how Satan tempts them, right? Oh, God doesn't want to give you that knowledge. Then you'll be more like him. It's that pride always involves comparison. But when we speak about God, there is no comparison. He is the ultimate against which all things are compared. So when there is no potential comparison, there is no pride. And we think about this in our finite human minds where all we know is comparisons. We have to go above that. God should be glorified because there is no comparison to him. And so pray. When you intercede, ask yourself, how may God receive glory through an answer? And then appeal to that. Lesson five, pray the most important thing, which is God's promises. Look what he says here. Look what he prays in verses 17 through 20. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the third and fourth generation. Okay, he's quoting scripture here. He's quoting God's promises back to him. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, which is ironic that he ends with that, according to your word, because Moses actually prays according to his word. According to his word. It's tempting when we pray for others to give in to the tyranny of the urgent, because certain needs will always seem more pressing. It seems like if that person only was healthy, if they only had security in their life, only had material provision, only had more time for themselves, then their problems would go away. They would be healed. They would be complete. But here we're reminded that forgiveness between God and man, between judge and guilty, between father and son, nothing else will change a person's life like a promise of forgiveness, the promise of never leaving or forsaking a person because they're forgiven, the promise that God is always for you because you know you're forgiven. 
But it's so tempting to pray just for those urgent things that we think will quickly take away the problem. They're just a Band-Aid. They're just a Band-Aid. I uh, have in my hand here some note cards I wrote up at the end of the summer. I am not a great prayer person. All right, I admitted this to you. I'm not a man of intercessory prayer, strong in that area. So someone suggested I write note cards. And I tried lists, but I find that, you know, like if you have a journal or, or, you know, a lot of times you can't find it later or lists aren't very portable, they get lost. So paper clips and note cards, put them together, easier to carry around. Someone suggested that. And they suggested also writing a verse, a promise, if you will, to begin a prayer for a person or for a group of people. So I did that on the top of the card, verse, and then some items for prayer. And so I have cards right now for my family, for Georgetown Outreach, for our community groups, for the elders and leaders in our church, for, for non-Christians who don't yet know Christ. So for instance, I have one for my son, my oldest son, Mason, who I adore. He's gentle, he's faithful, he's, he's a kind boy, strong character, but he struggles with fear. Just, it's a struggle for him, fear. And so... For him, I have written on here a promise. I, I remind God of his promise. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. So I say, God, I know you love this boy. You created him. But your love is perfect, it says in your word. So drive out fear. I believe you want a perfect love for him. Drive out that fear. I remind God of his word. Or for... Um, Folks who haven't yet trusted their life to Christ on that, that little note card. I have written down uh, 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and pleasing to God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God, you desire for all people to come to a knowledge of who you are, to your truth. I'm reminding you of this. Remind God of his promises in prayer. Lesson six. Don't expect your prayer to protect people always from divine consequences. All right, verses 20 through 24. Do I really even need to read, read this? Uh, okay, yeah. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. But none of these men who have seen my glory and my signs I did in Egypt, yet have put me to the test, shall see this land I swore to give to my fathers. Can't protect people always from divine consequences. In fact, a better prayer is for God to bear fruit through discipline that we all experience as sons and daughters of our father. I was talking to a father many years ago whose son was uh, experiencing the negative effects of favoritism in playing in, in soccer and football. The, the coach's son, who was clearly not as good as this man's son, was inserted in the starting lineup. All right, everyone kind of knew he wasn't as good as this man's son, but he was experiencing this. I said, man, that's kind of a bummer. I'm really sorry. And the father just stopped me and said, don't be. You know, the, my wife and I actually see this as an opportunity. We pray, we actually pray for low-grade, what do you call I like this, low-grade suffering while he's under our roof. So he might begin to learn how to respond to suffering. Will he turn to Christ and rely on him, or will he sulk? Will he rebel? Now is a time to learn how to respond to suffering. And as God's children, we're always learning how to respond to that. 
And suffering can actually grow us. Lesson number seven. God fulfills ancient promises in personally tailored ways. Verse 25 says this. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. It's not unusual for us to get frustrated when praying for people because we don't often see, or we think we don't see, God answering those prayers. And so what happens? Eventually we give up, right? Start to give up. And I want to admit up front that some answers that God gives, man, they remain veiled. They remain shrouded. No matter how hard you try and discern to see how God's answered that prayer, you don't see it. And I also want to suggest that it's often, we often don't see God's answer because we're really looking for our answer. How we envision God fulfilling his promise. You know what I mean? We're looking for the obvious or or what we think should happen. The example we have here is that in this passage, God promises to forgive. So where would one look for evidence of that forgiveness? How does God show his forgiveness? What do you think? The promised land, right? Oh, God has forgiven us. It's promised land time. Let's do this. But God immediately leads them in the opposite direction, into the wilderness. And so we've got to conclude, well, man, he must be mad. He must still be mad. He probably hasn't really forgiven them. He leads them away from the promised land. Now, if we stop there, we'd miss perhaps the most important detail of this story. Some commentators agree, some disagree, but it's not, I believe it's not the Amalekites or Canaanites that really caused God to turn his people to the opposite direction and go the other way. He turns them away from the promised land in order to lead them to the Red Sea. Why? Because only there could God answer Moses' prayer for God to be glorified in the lives of his people? Only there could God demonstrate grace in a way that was effectively tangible in their lives. Only there could he help them trust in his faithfulness again. Remember why? Remember the, the Red Sea represented the penultimate conclusion to God's fulfilling his promise to his people to deliver them from those 430 years of oppression, Right? They couldn't go back there without being reminded. After God had delivered them, there was one last test where everything seemed lost, one last test of faith, and they were called to walk through a wall of water. So you can imagine as God leads them back by way of the Red Sea, them standing on the shores, just smelling the the death of their oppressors, uh, feeling the sea that was once on two sides of them, now lapping at their feet, hearing the the victory song of Miriam again in their ears and in their hearts. They couldn't help but be reminded of God's faithfulness. Friends, the greatest gift God can keep giving us, and thus the request we should keep asking on others' behalf, is the gift of trust or faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, It is by grace we've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Hebrews 11, 6 says that without faith, we can't please God. But guess what? You can't produce faith on your own. It's a gift. It's a gift. And God means to grow first this gift in us, this trust. 
Aaron, Caleb, Joshua, heck, even Moses, they were just men who would likely have thought that the opening, the floodgates to the promised land is the most obvious answer to prayer, the most likely answer to prayer here, the right answer to prayer. But God loved his people more than that. So he sent them by way of the Red Sea. Do you know that what you and I often assume as blessing is sometimes not? You know that even what some preachers call blessing is often not. Benjamin Kwashi experienced this. Archbishop of Jos, Nigeria, a city that has been rocked by sectarian violence for years now. In March of 2009, a gang of people broke into the bishop's house to kill him. And he wasn't home, but his wife was. He did unspeakable things to her, beat her, left her for dead. He found her, she was still alive, but she spent most of the following year in recovery. During that time, he prayed two things every day over that year. He prayed that God would somehow be glorified, and that God would produce faith in him and his precious wife and in his teenage son who'd become embittered towards God because of this horrific incident, become hardened towards God. Benjamin imagined God using his wife's testimony of faith to encourage others who'd received similar treatment, maybe allowing them to forgive their enemies, even when it was hard to do so. And perhaps their teenage son maybe would see God helping them forgive. But God had a different answer. He had a tailor-made answer for them. A year to the day after this incident, a year to the day, after this gang beat her in March 2010, that same group of people came back. They broke into the same home again. This time they did find Benjamin. They dragged him out of the house. And they're going to hurt him. Benjamin asked for just a moment to pray before they began. So he knelt there on the dirt and began to pray out loud the same two things he had prayed every day over that last year. But little did Benjamin know God had already answered his prayer. A moment later, he felt someone holding his hand. He looked up, and it was his wife. He couldn't believe the courage of this woman. She could have ran. She could have run away. But instead, she bravely broke through the lines of the same people who had beaten her just a year before. She knelt down with her husband to pray, knowing that her life was probably over as well. And then a moment later, he felt someone holding his other hand, and he looked, and it was his teenage son, and Benjamin begged his son to leave, telling him, they will, they will kill you. Leave. Please leave. And the son said, Father, they've left. They're all gone. He's, and I, from what I gather, I, I overheard them say, they heard you pray, and they were overcome by a presence. So they fled. Father, I too, I want to pray with you. When you see a brother or sister caught in sin, pray what is most important. Pray God's promises. and He will personally tailor a response that may not look glamorous because he's producing a faith that's glorious. Let's pray. Lord, a number of lessons to learn. It's an amazing example of interceding for people. God, I pray that you would impress on our hearts what you most want us to learn. I pray, perhaps and most of all, 
me to remember and not give up praying because your fulfillment of your promise doesn't look like we thought it might look. You often make it look like the Red Sea. Why would we go back there? Why would we go back to hardship again? Because you want to produce in us a faith that is far glorious. Help us not be afraid or ashamed to pray what's most important for their sake, Lord, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.